Good morning, College Park. So glad you're here today. Before I get into my sermon today, I want <clears throat> to excuse me, do something that I don't often do, but I really feel the need to do this morning, and that is I want to, uh, for a moment, just weigh in on a subject that made the news this week, specifically the issue of same-sex marriage. This is not a new issue, and to be very clear, I'm not making any kind of political endorsement of any kind. Rather, two things have deeply concerned me about the president's public endorsement of same-sex marriage this week. First, it was deeply disturbing and offensive to me that he would suggest that Jesus would somehow endorse same-sex marriage under the rubric of the golden rule. Secondly, it struck me and alarmed me that part of the argument given was that his children didn't really think it was that big of a deal anyways. In other words, the next generation, because of the normalcy of what should be abnormal, has become comfortable with that which they should be uncomfortable. And that just really struck me pastorally and as a father. So, since the president has wandered into theological territory, (laughs) and because I feel that there are far more influences today telling our young people that same-sex attraction, same-sex relationship, same-sex marriage is normal and acceptable, I I want to add my voice to this issue. So, as lovingly and as clearly as I can say it, I simply want to say... That the Bible defines homosexuality as sin. And that God designed marriage for one man and one woman. So same-sex marriage is not marriage. It's wrong. And we should do, and I exhort you to do whatever you can to preserve this foundational pillar of society and culture that a man and a woman is what makes marriage. To oppose same-sex marriage is not a violation of the golden rule. And it is a sad day to me when our children see this violation of God's word as both normal and acceptable. According to the Bible, marriage is between a man and a woman. Period. Father, we need your help because books like 1 Timothy and others seem to be increasingly more and more relevant to where we live. And we need your help to be able to navigate the cultural waters in which we live, to be able to think biblically, to speak compassionately, but to speak clearly. So Lord, in the midst of a lot of things within our culture, we need to be a lighthouse and a hill And so help us not to be arrogant or haughty. Help us to not be caustic or rude. Help us to be godly men and women who long to see your word go forth with power. And so we invite the Holy Spirit today to fill this room and to give us understanding as to how we should handle uh, a subject like money. And so help us to be rich in all of the right ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Among all of the things that we have tried to teach our children, we've attempted to help them understand the value of money. I'm not sure exactly at what age it happens, but somewhere along the line, children begin to pick up our cultural passion for consumption. I'm sure you've experienced this firsthand when you're pulling in your shopping cart into the area where you check out, only to be assaulted by your kids with the well-positioned gum and candy and super glue and nail clippers and iTunes cards and Pez dispensers as you travel through this gauntlet of desire. I'm sure that your experience has been like ours. You can hardly get through Target without saying, no, honey, not today, a hundred times. So recently my, my wife decided to fight back. There was a certain Polly Pocket that Savannah desired with all her heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Sarah allowed her to work, do some chores around the house to earn enough money so that she could purchase this great and cherished toy of all toys. After a fair amount of labor and collecting her money, finally Savannah had enough. So Sarah went to the store, she purchased the Polly Pocket toy, brought it home, presented it to Savannah, and then asked for the money. All of it. This was shocking and a bit disturbing to Savannah, who opened up her little wallet and said, All of it? To which my wife said, Yes, dear, all of it. And so Savannah emptied her wallet of all that she had had, received the Polly Pocket, and went up to her room to play with it. So our goal, again, was to teach her, to temper her desires in light of what things actually cost. However, the lesson went even further. A few days later, apparently after Polly had lost some of her pizzazz, (laughs) Savannah said to Sarah, I miss my money. You've done that, haven't you? You know exactly what she's talking about. You've purchased something, and you're like, "Ah, I miss my money. Why did I buy that? Listen, garage sale season is coming up. And you know why garage sales work? Because we buy things that we don't need and don't want and don't use. The reality is we live in a midst of a culture where money, possessions, and things grab a hold of us. So as we wrap up our study of 1 Timothy, we find here a very important caution about how to think biblically regarding our stuff. Because not unlike children, adults, all of us really, money, possessions, and stuff, they can grab a hold of our souls. So 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 19, it's interesting that Paul addresses this issue head on, and he uses the word rich in four different ways in the text. He, he uses it as an adjective, a noun, an adverb, and a verb. Rich, riches, richly, and rich. So Tim, Paul is driving into this subject, and within this text today I want to show you a, a caution about our wealth, a contrast between what our wealth really could say about God, and then... Also a choice that I I want to invite you to make about what you should do in terms of your money and how it relates to the whole subject of generosity. So let's first hear this issue of caution. The question is, what does your money say about you? What does your money say about you? Now, you might look at this text and think it's kind of odd. Just after Paul has completed this great doxology, remember last week about Jesus, or God rather, who dwells in unapproachable light, to him be honor and glory forever and ever, amen, and And suddenly now he throws in this thing on money, but it's really continuing a theme that 
you heard two weeks ago when Pastor Joe did a great job talking about the subject of contentment. So Paul returns to this subject. And as well, he addresses it because greed was so much of a problem as it related to the false teachers that he wanted to be sure that Timothy understood clearly how to talk to and address this really important issue in the context of the church. So regarding a caution, here's the first thing that we see is that riches can be merely temporary. Notice how verse 17 begins, as for the rich in this present age. Paul could have just said, as for the rich, but he added this little phrase, in this present age. The reason is, is he wants to make a, a pretty clear point here, and that's this, that the way in which you live your life now may not be necessarily indicative of what your afterlife or your eternal life experience is really going to be like. Remember, we have heard already when Paul was giving this charge to Timothy that he's to run his race, and he's to run it with sort of an outward look, a persevering glance. 1 Timothy 6 says, verse 14, looking for the appearing of our Lord Jesus. So Timothy's to run while looking for something in the future as well. 1 Timothy 6, 12, he says that he's to, to, to do his work of ministry while laying hold of eternal life. So there's sort of this dual existence that Timothy is to live in and he's to teach his people about. That while they're living their life here, there's another world, another realm, an eternal existence that's also on the line. In other words... The message of the Bible is that decisions made in this lifetime have implications in the next. Well, this just begins with your soul. I mean, decisions you make about who Jesus is and who you are in terms of your sin in front of a holy God, that has implications for the next life, for your eternal life. Same thing as it relates to the use of your money. I mean, just listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 10. On a positive level, it means that anyone who sacrifices in this world will be rewarded in the next when it's done in the name of Christ. He says this, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first so he's saying you endure difficulty now you'll be rewarded in the future now to put it negatively jesus also says you could waste your life now spend it on all sorts of desires and pleasures only to completely miss the point of life he says this in mark 8 36 for what is a profit of man if he gained the whole world and forfeit forfeit his soul the the point should be obvious that there's a connection between how you live your life now and the next and it's conceivable that somebody could be rich in this lifetime and then be poor in the next or for that matter someone could live it up in pleasure and never deal with their soul and find themselves in a Christless eternity, a place called hell. The caution here is to realize that wealth and riches and this life are limited. So financial success in one realm might not translate into success in the other. Therefore, we need to be careful. As for the rich in this present age. He then says, secondly, charge them not to be haughty. In other words, secondly here, wealth can create pride. Timothy is to speak directly to those who are wealthy, and he's commanded to warn them. The word charge is a word we've seen before. It relates to Paul's 
command of Timothy to use his pastoral authority with his people, a word connected to his role as a shepherd. Now you need to know, it's not that Paul is against someone having money. He's not against wealth. But like other things, Timothy has to caution his people in areas that could be a challenge to their souls, and this is one of them, that wealth can create pride. That word pride is... The word haughty in this particular translation charges them not to be haughty. If you NIV, it renders it as arrogant. King James, you may remember this from growing up, be not high-minded. That's not a bad way to talk about it. Or New American Standard, conceited. It's a, it's a compound word meaning to think or cherish exalted thoughts of oneself. So, so you know this. You buy a new piece of clothing, and you like the way it looks. And so you go to the office, you go to church, you go out to dinner with your friends, and there's just a little pep in your step, just like, "Mm, I'm looking good today, right? You get a piece of technology, you know, and you're really excited about it, so you happen to pull it out at dinner just conveniently, oh, let me check the weather when we go home. And it was, oh, wow, the, the new piece of technology. Or you get this really big belt clip that just pushes it out so people are like what you got there wow that's the new thing you know or you you got you got a vehicle and you're driving around you just can't you drive by a, a shopping center and you see the the, the the reflection of your car and you're like man i'm looking sweet or you put a put a big stereo system in it right and you're like you know you just you got this thing get the new shades with it and it just come on it creates something within us doesn't it, it the, the the thing that we buy it, it creates an elevation of the soul possessions or comfort or money can cause a person to cherish themselves to think exalted thoughts about themselves and the temptation friends is easy and familiar it goes all the way back in fact to the old testament where god warned his people when when you move into the new land and you have all of these things you better be careful because you could start to think that you did this in fact look at this passage deuteronomy chapter 8 He cautions them. He says, be careful. When you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. And he reminds them what God did, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of flinty rocks, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you and to do you good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, here's the key, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Friends, be warned of this process that sounds something like this. I have this, I like this, I did this. At the center of this self absorption is this self-reliant self-congratulatory attitude where you actually think that you did it i have this i like this i did this as i'll show you in a few moments something wrong with i have and i like but when you move from i have i like to i did that's a huge bridge that you should not cross 
There's another angle to this as well, and it relates not only to the aspect of pride in terms of thinking that you did it, but it also relates to the idea of expectations. Because after a while, you get used to having and liking and thinking that you did, and then after a while, you begin to think that somehow you've got a right to these things. And so it sounds like this. I have this, I like this, I did this, and then you think, I deserve this. I've worked hard. I studied hard. I gave sacrifices. I, I, I've I paid my dues. I've done my time. See, the reality is these, these expectations can come about because after all, let's be honest, money creates solutions. It produces comfort. It makes things happen. It, it gives a person options and, and a sense of empowerment. Wealth creates a scenario where you become accustomed to getting things exactly the way you want them. Problems can be fixed quickly. You, you can afford the best and high quality solutions. And people become interested in catering to your needs, your wants, and your desires. After all, you're paying them to do so. And what happens? Is this can get in your soul and you become so accustomed to people serving you and jumping to meet your needs that you begin to treat everybody as if they should serve you. Some of you have high positions in our community and you go to work and you can command people and they jump and you go home and wonder why your wife and kids won't do the same and it creates marital tension i can go to work and everybody listens to me how come no one listens to me here hello because you're paying those people to listen to you right you look around and think my my goodness how, how did this happen well it's what money can produce an entitlement mentality where sneaks in the back door of your life and you begin to think man i people are supposed to serve me because that's what most people do and that's what money creates some of you are thinking well look mark no problem here i'm not wealthy but i would suggest to you the issue is not the quantity of money or the quantity of your wealth it really relates to how you view money and For that matter, let me push on that just a little bit further to suggest to you that if you take a global perspective in terms of wealth, we are phenomenally wealthy. Everyone in this room is wealthy from a global perspective. When I landed from Liberia into Atlanta airport and I saw pictures on the wall of skylines of American cities, it just struck me. We are in economic Disneyland and not always that good for our soul. Part of me wonders, you know, overseas oftentimes Americans are known as rude Americans. And I wonder if part of the reason is, is because of our collective wealth, which creates a perspective that gives birth to this reputation, expecting that everyone will cater our needs because we're so used to it. So, wealth can create pride. Third, here's a scary one, friends. Money can also create false belief. Yeah, false belief. Look what he says. Not Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Notice, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. The word hope is so important in the Bible because it's synonymous with what a person puts their trust in, what a person relies on, what they have put their confidence in, and here's another word, what they put their security in. We even call programs in our country with these terms, social security. Those terms might not go well together in the next 15 years, we'll see. But social security, the idea is that that money, let's be honest, money creates a sense of security, a, a feeling of safety. 
And, and what happens when, when money creates that level of security and safety, it actually removes something that's very, very important for your soul. And you know what that is? Need. A person with money can become unfamiliar with desperation. They can become unfamiliar with dependence. What's so tragic about this is not only the fact that it's not good for our soul, but also it's, it's relatively crazy to think this way because after all, money is completely unstable and uncertain. I mean, I, I smile now when I see a dollar bill, and I've said this before, and I see those letters on it that it's FDIC insured, meaning that this, this bill is backed by the solvency and the security of the American government. And I look at that and go, yeah, that just doesn't help me, right? It just doesn't make me feel better. One of the values, frankly, of the Great Recession was just a reminder of how quickly money can fly away. Proverbs 23.5 says, when your eyes light on it, meaning money, it's gone. Suddenly it sprouts wings and flies like an eagle towards heaven. Some of you say, yep, I saw that. Except that eagle wasn't flying, it was nosediving, right? And you watched, what was it, between 2007 and 2009, $16.4 trillion flew away. Just, where'd it go? It's just gone. So there's a caution here that money can actually create a false belief system. That's why, listen to me, you have to give. Not, not just to your church. You, you have to give, and here's why. Because if you don't, there will never be any sense of need in your life. And I would encourage you to give such that it creates a little bit of a gulp as it relates to the need. Because that need is good for your soul. Money is not necessarily wrong or sinful, but there are dangers with it, and so there's some cautions. So secondly, Paul turns to this issue of a contrast. So that's what our money says about us. We've got to think through. So what does, that, what does my money say about me in terms of pride and belief and what really I'm living for? But secondly, what does your money really say about God? And Paul lays out here a better path. Notice that he says in verse 17, the latter part, Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he says here, essentially, that God is our hope, not money. I mean, most people around the world know this so clearly. They get sick, and they need God to help them. They don't have the medical care they need. They need God to heal them. They're in financial distress. They need God to show up and help them. And so part of the challenge with being in a position where you have money is that one might not begin to put their hope in God in a real practical way. And after all, this notion of hoping in God is is part of the essence of what Christianity is. After all, when when somebody repents of their sins and they put their faith and trust in Jesus, they they see his death on the cross and they understand what the gospel is, that, that God will forgive them in Christ When you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, what you did is you put your hope in God that He will be true to His Word and He will forgive you based upon the work of Jesus, not what you've done. That's the Gospel. So you come to faith in Christ by hoping in God and then the rest of your life you spend hoping in God. It becomes a way of life. I mean, such that it needs to show up practically in how we live. Like 2 Corinthians 9.8, it says this, God is able to make all grace abound to you. Do you know what that means? It means that God is the one who controls your career. So when God gave you that blessing and he helped you nail that sales job, that wasn't just you. That was God lining all the details up. And when, when you have favor with your boss such that they give you a promotion, that wasn't just you. It was God who was lining all of that up. 
It's God who gives you the grace. Or, in some cases, he gives you the grace to be content with what you have. And suddenly now you just feel content in driving your old clunker of a vehicle with 170,000 miles. You're like, I love this car, you know? And before you hated it, now you dig it. You don't want that. You got this. And you see your house, and it's not everything that you could have. But you know what? You're happy where it is. And, 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 and you find a level of contentment, and God gives you the grace. Hoping in God means that you live by a different value set. Like Jesus said, don't be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So to hope in God means that he's your supply, he's your provision, he's your security. And the problem, friends, is that money can compete with that. And so there needs to be this fundamental commitment that I'm not going to put my hope in money. I'm going to put my hope in God. And therefore, as we'll see at the end, I'm going to be generous. The second thing he says here regarding this contrast, not only that you put your hope on God, but notice who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So what he says is that everything is a gift from God. Again, this is a a fundamental worldview about how you see things and life in general. You might get the impression from what I'm saying that God is against wealth or as if true spirituality was selling everything and having no possessions, no money, and, and no wealth whatsoever but that would be the missed point entirely and what paul is saying here is the key to understanding money is realizing that everything that we have is a gift from god in fact he says who richly provides us with everything to enjoy so he provides for us richly so it's not that god is against rich possessions after all he's the one who made those things possible in the first place And for that matter, God isn't against the enjoyment of those things either. In fact, it says, provides us everything to enjoy. So you don't need to feel guilty about what you've been given. You may have advanced gloriously so in a career, and you've got a a, a wonderful standard of, of living. You don't need to feel guilty about that. You may have been born into a family that had a long legacy of money. Great. You may have worked really hard and God's blessed you, or you may have just really tried to scrape by and, and you've, you've done well. You don't need to feel guilty if you understand that everything you have is a gift from God. You could waste all of God's provision by somehow thinking it's about you, as if somehow, somehow there's an entitlement perspective as it relates to those things. It, it means that these gifts that God gives are meant to be conduits to point us back to Him, not cul-de-sacs for self-reflection and exaltation. So it's all about perspective. It means that you see what you've been given, you know how deeply that you have been loved, how God has rescued you and given you everything, and that beginning from salvation all the way to everything you have in your life, it's all been a gift from God. Everything is a gift. There is nothing that you have that you haven't received. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Everything is a gift from God. Then the result of all of this should be, there should be a fundamental perspective of generosity, which, frankly, is just the natural response to what God has done. Look at verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. The reason that Paul identifies this is that wealth has a twofold edge to it. In the first place, it can make you think too highly of yourself, and in the second place, it tends to make you look down on others. You think, boy, I bet they wish they had this. 
to, to, just to have a little bit different perspective. And so instead, what happens is the gospel and this generosity on God's part changes what we think of ourselves, what we think of God, but it also then changes practically what we do in terms of care and ministry to other people. In fact, I would argue you don't really understand God's generosity to you unless you not only understand yourself, but also your responsibility to help meet the needs of other people. In fact, the book of First John just clearly links these things together. He says this, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's a compelling text. It reminds us, sort of in a bottom line sort of way, that generosity fits with the gospel. In fact, generosity fits with the gospel so closely that to not have generosity to be a part of your life should cause you to question if you really understand the gospel in the first place. And by the way, this extends to more than just money. Um, more than just wealth. Gospel-loving people should have a generous orientation to all aspects of life. But frankly, some of us might be more free to be generous with our money than we would our time. Or a special thing that we have. Generosity in light of the gospel should affect every aspect of our life every single day. Philip Ryken has a great commentary on First Timothy and in a very pastoral way, he gives some great suggestions. So just listen to this, especially kids. Listen really carefully to me, because you might think, I got, I got no money, Pastor Mark. I got like I get seven bucks a week in my allowance. I got nothing. And some of you are like, oh man, I'd like that. So, but even if you don't have a lot of money, just listen, generosity could show up in a lot of other ways. He writes this, one way for us to become more like Christ in our giving is to train ourselves to be generous in the little sacrifices of daily life. Take the small piece of cake. Let someone else have the parking space. Leave hot water in the tank for the next shower. Yeah, I mean, you live in a large family like ours, you know, that's amen, amen, amen. Do someone else's chores. Here you go, dads. Share your power tools. Look to pass the ball before you shoot. Put a little extra in the offering plate. For the Christian, he says, generosity ought to be a way of life. In other words, friends, we're supposed to be generous, not only with our money, with our time, your home, your schedule, your family, your career, your car. You're just commanded to be generous because God has been so incredibly generous with you. It's a small thing, and I really hope this doesn't go viral, but in our neighborhood, we have determined as a family that we have a policy that every child that comes to our door in our neighborhood, okay, in our neighborhood, got to be in the neighborhood, if they're selling, you know, Girl Scout cookies or Boy Scouts popcorn with chocolate drizzle for 20 bucks or um, <laughs> swim club or FFA or whatever, if they come to our door and it's a kid and they got a cause, our answer is yes. 
And so we, we just want to be a yes house. Okay, so unless it's sinful or they're trying to raise money for Al-Qaeda, we're going to say yes. Okay, it's just a yes. Cause I, why? Because I want our house to be gospel-flavored in terms of our generosity. I don't want to be known as a generous person. That's not why. Because I want, when kids walk by our house, to go, those are the people that always say yes. Not, and you know people like this in your neighborhood. They're the mean people. You know those? You know what? Don't, don't be a mean person in your neighborhood. Say yes. Buy the popcorn for crying out loud. Buy the Girl Scout cookies. And I'm not getting any kickback from Girl Scouts, just, you know, for saying this. I'm just saying, be a kind of person who has an orientation to be generous. So here's the question. So what does your money say about you? What does your time, your schedule, your stuff, does, does your generosity fit with God's generosity? Couch Park, I want you to be rich in the right way. So there's some caution. There's a contrast. Here's the final thing. Paul gives us this choice, and it's just beautiful how he identifies why generosity is a better choice. And what he does here is he motivates by giving us the reason why this is a better way to choose. Clement of Alexandria said this, It is not the one who keeps, but the one who gives away who is rich. And it is giving away, not possession, which renders a man happy. So what we have here is a beautiful motivation for giving that goes way beyond a guilt trip. Don't you hate being motivated to give by a guilt trip? It doesn't work. In fact, from God's perspective, he doesn't want your money if you're giving because you're guilty. He's got other people who can fund and get the blessing. Instead, there's another motivation, a better one, and it's this. That first and foremost, generosity is fundamentally a better investment. Look at what he says in verse 19. After saying all of these things, he then says, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So again, he links this life and the next. And essentially, what he's saying here is that the Bible is not against investment. The Bible is against bad investment. Where you would waste your life and spend money on things and stuff and all of the trinkets that are involved in this world and neglect greater treasure and greater wealth even in the future. I mean, listen to the argument of the Bible from Luke chapter 12. Fear not, Jesus says, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's Jesus saying? What's, what's Paul saying? He's saying something really important, that there's a direct relationship, a clear connection between eternal rewards and earthly financial generosity. There's a clear cause-effect relationship between giving now and spiritual rewards later. And it is fascinating that the Bible motivates giving, not by saying give because you have to, but rather give because God has been generous and it's a great investment for the future. I mean, that's what the argument is. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves and a good foundation for the future. And part of the reason why the Bible does this is because there's a temptation when we give to believe a lie. And the lie is, look, I'm giving this and I'm just throwing this money away. Because that's what it feels like at times. You're just, you're just giving it and there it goes and it's gone. Instead, What Paul wants us to see, what Jesus wants us to see, is you're not giving it away, you're not losing it, you're investing it for a future return. You see, giving 
And generosity does something really important for your soul. That's why it says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. It means that when you give, it's a, a conscious effort to stake your claim in believing in God. It also means that if you find yourself in a spiritual low point, spiritual depression, one of the ways to start to climb out of that is to give. So don't be surprised if you start to have a stingy heart and you're not giving if your soul begins to shrink because there's a direct correlation between what you do with your money and what your soul really is all about. Generosity is a better investment. Here's the last thing he says. It's just remarkable that giving reflects a greater joy. Look at what he says in the latter part of verse 19. So that they may lay hold of that which is truly life. In other words, this is real living. Real living doesn't, isn't involved in grabbing of stuff and material possessions and those things, they, they don't last, they break. It's not truly rewarding. So he says to take hold of, and in one respect, to take hold of eternal life means that there's again this other world perspective that you're investing in the future that you're making a great choice you'll 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 never regret investing in the future when you get to heaven and you see the beauty of what your investment has done part of the joy of being gone last couple weeks and seeing our investment in the continent of africa is to be able to see with my own eyes what your money has done i mean it's just it was motivating incredibly and, and I gotta believe that when we get to heaven, we're gonna see and feel the same thing. It kinda reminds me of that scene in Schindler's List when Oscar Schindler, the, the man who rescued 1100 Jews by purchasing their freedom to work in his factory and he's being arrested, he's taking off his ring and saying, I could have done more, I could have done more, I could have done more. There's not gonna be any sense in your heart that you're gonna regret what you've done on this earth in terms of giving it away. There might be an element of regret when you think, you know what, I could have done more. And you see your, your stuff, your, TVs, your vehicles, your vacations, your homes. You see all this stuff and you're like, you know what? This isn't real living. This isn't. But I also think that there's something that relates to right here and right now. And take hold of that which is truly life doesn't just refer to something in the future. I think it also refers to how you live right now. And by that I mean you get a taste every once in a while, don't you? Of what it means when Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. You you get these moments when you begin to taste what heaven's going to be like because of your giving. Maybe because of financially you're able to see how God uses that money. Or maybe that in your investment of your time or volunteering, you you just get the taste of of, this is really worth it. And, And when you taste it, you're just like, yes, this is what's really important. This week I was um, honored to be able to attend a graduation service for three women who had just completed their mother's university certificate through a heart change ministry in Brookside. These women come from the Brookside neighborhood. They've been a part of a Bible study. They've um, learned how to do life, balance a checkbook. Some of them got their GED. Some of them else learned how to be able to, to turn away from toxic relationships. And these women graduated from this program this week that was started by some ladies in our church. And in the audience of this Mother's University were volunteers from our church and from some others who every Tuesday they got up and they went and they picked these ladies up and they sat with them, taught them the scriptures and jumped into the deep end of the pond. And sometimes it was really deep. 
and yet walked them through the difficulties of their life and were able to there be at the graduation. And as each of these women stood at that pulpit and shared the story of what God had done in their life, there was tears, there was emotions, not only on their part, but also the volunteers who poured their life into these women. And there was an immediate sense within that room as I was able to watch this, this beautiful double joy thing that was happening. There was joy from the person who was changed, but there was joy from the volunteer who was able to invest her time, energy, and effort. And because of the generosity of time, she was able to taste a little, just a little morsel of what heaven is going to be like. You see, this is the beauty of generosity at any level. It helps you to lay hold of that which is truly life. So my, my question and my, my challenge today is, is frankly, is very simple, and it's just this. Are, are you rich in the right way? Do, do you see the dangers of what money can do to your soul? Do, do you hear the caution about what possessions can do to create pride or condescension? Do you see what money says about your relationship with God? Do you see what you're missing if you continually extinguish the embers of generosity that are in your soul? Listen, I I, I do not want to guilt you into generosity. That is not helpful for you or anyone. Instead, what I want you to see, friends, is I want you to see what you could be missing out. I want the very best for you. I want you to grab hold of that which is truly life. I want you to be rich in all of the right ways and to use your money not as a platform for self, but as a platform for the gospel and the glory of God in this world. So be rich, but be rich in the right way. Lord, help us. In the midst of all the things that we have, all of the wealth and money and comforts, it's so easy to assume that because these things are so familiar that we either deserve them or we have come to expect them. And we need to be sure that these things don't grab a hold of our soul. So help us to be generous with our time, with our schedule, with our stuff, with our families. Help us to be generous with our money. Help us to be the kind of people who are rich in all of the right ways. And then, Father, for those today whose big problem today is not money, but actually it relates to the essence of their soul, I pray that today by hearing a message on money, they come to understand that the real issue is they're spiritually poor because they've never turned from their sins and come to Christ. And today, Lord, would that be a beautiful thing that they could begin to be rich in all the right way by first becoming one of your sons or daughters, by repenting of their sins and receiving Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you that you've been so generous to us and help us to reflect that generosity to a watching world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be here today and the spiritual poverty that I talked about is what's going on in your soul. It has nothing to do with money. It really has to do with the, the state of where you're at spiritually. We'll have some folks up here who would love to pray with you, talk about those things. Or if you've got something else going on in your life, a surgery coming up, a huge deal today, they're here to pray for you and to minister to you, okay? All right. God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.